Hi, all of you, wherever you are. My name is Michael Starnago, speaking from Norway for this OIC Sunday Reflection and our second letter from lockdown. What does lockdown look like where you are? I guess that would be kind of a weird question to be asking so broadly to everyone just over a year ago. But under this world pandemic, many of us have experienced lockdowns of some sort. So what does lockdown look like where you are? What has it meant for you? Maybe you're someone else in the world and you're watching this on on YouTube or on Instagram, or maybe you're even listening to it on our brand new OIC podcast, which we have just launched. Or maybe you're here in Oslo, which means you're also watching this on YouTube or on Instagram or hearing it on the podcast because we're still not able to meet in person and to have our services here at Hashle Hirke together. Things are still quite restricted and have been for quite a long time here in Oslo. So that's invariably where we are speaking from. We're speaking from lockdown in Oslo and, and about how it affects our lives and from how it affects our communities and how we think about these things. And so our new series of reflections is called Letters from Lockdown. But this isn't only or even mainly about our lockdown. There are and there have been many lockdowns throughout history and throughout the world. And we have in these series the good company of the Apostle Paul as he writes from his very real lockdown, which was a prison. And, and he writes to the followers of Christ in the city of Philippi. And the Philippians had also their own experience of restricted freedom uh, as a group whose beliefs and style of life ran counter to the city that they lived in, and they were persecuted for that very reason. So what do you write about? What do you think and talk about when you are writing from a reality of lockdown? and two realities of lockdowns of different kinds. And I think it's a fair guess that most of the things that we directly associate with the word and with the experience are not positive. Sure, there is the positive outcome that we hope to get out of this specific corona-related lockdown uh, or the negative one that we hope to avoid, but that doesn't mean we like it. That doesn't mean it doesn't weigh down on us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have some scary dimensions. Arguably, the scariest of them is the undeniable reality of death. How do we write letters from this reality? How do we speak about death? It tends to be a gloomy subject. But here's a memory of my grandpa, of my grandfather, talking about death when he was already quite old and statistically very close to it. These are his words. I don't know why Jesus is keeping me waiting. Many of my friends are already there eating manioc flour with him. And for some reason, he keeps me waiting. I'm quite ready to eat manioc flour with Jesus. (laughs) Yes, that is a very odd thing to say. But let me tell you a bit about my grandpa and, and paint a scene on this quote a bit more. And then I can tell you why this whole thing stuck with me. Grandpa was from the northeast of Brazil, where I'm from, from an area where they eat 
a whole lot of manioc cassava products. And we're particularly fond of manioc flour. There's all sorts of manioc flour out there. Uh, and in the area where my grandpa lived, they have this very yellow flour with these big grains that feel like they're going to break your teeth when you eat them. And it sounds terrible, but it's really delicious. I, I loved traveling there when I was a kid and eating that stuff. And my grandpa just loved it. He would just call it farinha, which in Portuguese just means flour, really. But he meant that specific flour, and he loved it. He would eat it with absolutely everything. Everything. <laughs> and sometimes he would just scoop some of it out of a jar, out of the jar of flour with a spoon, and he would pour it onto the hollow of his hand and then just throw the whole thing into his mouth. Grandma used to do the same thing, and there's sort of a specific technique to doing that, you know, at which I failed at with disastrous effects. So when Grandpa said that he was ready to eat manioc flour with Jesus, there was a lot going on in that apparently very odd statement. He was speaking of eating something that he loved in the company of someone he loved. And he was speaking of a Jesus who would have no qualms and in fact have much joy in eating manioc flour with him. He was speaking of intimacy and meal sharing with Jesus. It's all profound stuff. But there is also that talk of waiting, right? Of being kept waiting. I, I don't know why Jesus is keeping me waiting. I'm quite ready to eat manioc flour with Jesus. The words are filled with longing for what will come, for the, the then which we feel is in contrast to the now. Perhaps that's the kind of thing that you say when you're, when you're done with the now, when you're sort of, I don't know, tired or disillusioned of it all, waiting. But then the next thing you know, Grandpa is pouring another spoonful of manioc flour into the palm of his hand and joyfully scooping it into his mouth, and he's loving it. For some reason, that image, that sort of contrast is what stuck with me. That ability to thoroughly enjoy what was there in the hollow of his age-wrinkled hands at the same time as he spoke of the imminent reality of death and even of the longing to be done with the waiting. I hope I can be like that when I'm, when I'm that old. Someone who expresses presence and longing with the same mouthful of joy. When I read what I read in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians this week, in fact, has made me want to be like that, not just when I'm old, but already now. Paul is facing the proximity of death. But the issue with Paul when he's writing this letter isn't old age, it's capital punishment. He is under arrest in Rome, and he's very aware that his trial can go two different ways. There is a chance that he will be free and will be able to continue doing his thing, which was spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and traveling around and meeting people. But there is also a substantial chance that he will be condemned, in which case he'll get the capital punishment. He'll be put to death. 
The people that Paul is writing to, the Philippian believers, they know the situation that Paul is in, and they themselves face the daily possibility of persecution for their faith. And in a letter like this, Paul does not dance around the subject. He tackles it full on right at the beginning. And this is what Paul says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is in chapter 1 from verse 12, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is really a, a remarkable letter and a remarkable text. And if we don't know some of its context, we might well misunderstand it or draw some risky conclusions. Speaking about death, Paul says that for him to die is gain. What is this all about? Does Paul want to die? Perhaps he could have reasons for feeling like that. He had suffered a lot throughout his life and he was now in a Roman prison. And that was no picnic. Perhaps he was just tired of it all and didn't want to deal with the harshness of this lockdown anymore. Or perhaps he didn't really want to die, but he was just venting out his frustration. After all, what did he get for all his efforts? A prison. Now, as tempting as all this sort of interpretation might be, especially when we are ourselves frustrated and tired of it all, it simply won't hold water. To begin with, Paul's suffering and the imminent possibility of death was not something that Paul was contemplating hypothetically or for his own personal reasons. It was a real threat posed by a legal process being enforced upon him. So he's contemplating death because death is being forcefully put before him. Besides, as he reflects on his predicament, Paul, against all the odds, 
keeps on talking about joy. It's worth noting also that Paul isn't only reflecting on this for his own sake. He is concerned also with how his death could be interpreted by the community of believers to whom he was a pioneer and a leader. So Paul is considering, in fact, two questions. On the one hand, the question of what will happen to this movement of believers if a prominent leader and founder as Paul was executed. What did the possibility of his death mean for the church, as we would call it today? The other question is what would his death mean to himself? These questions, they are really intertwined, but he starts off by reassuring the Philippians that his imprisonment was in no way a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quite on the contrary, it seemed to have been encouraging other believers and given Paul himself an unusual but otherwise unlikely platform, which is the palace guard itself had no choice but to consider what it meant that this man was willing to be arrested and even killed for his faith. There is another side effect, you could call it, to Paul's imprisonment, however. And, and you, you could expect that Paul would react more angrily to this one. There were people who apparently saw Paul uh, being sort of taken out of the game as an opportunity to get prominence in this new Jesus movement. It's hard really to work out the details of who these people preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and self-ambition who they were. And I, I won't spend time going into all of that today. But it seems likely that they perceived a vacuum in leadership and saw it as an opportunity to advance themselves. Paul, however, seems unflustered by the reasons as long as the one being preached is Christ. And this might seem very odd indeed and even offensive to more pious sensibilities, but it's coherent with the red line that Paul is threading throughout this whole section. For he moves then towards contemplating the concrete and likely imminent reality of his own death. But rather than being scared, he seems almost eager. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. At the same time, he speaks of being convinced of continuing with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So what is it, Paul? Do you want to live or do you want to die? And the answer is that those things are not in opposition for Paul. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Those things are not in opposition for Paul. What Paul desires, what he is eager for, that which brings him joy is Christ. I guess if we make those into nouns and we ask Paul if he wants life or death, then Paul wants life. And Christ is life. Also in death, Christ is life. That is the source of power and joy that Paul is drinking from and pouring out in these words. This continuous and faithful presence of Christ 
in life and beyond and despite death. Whether Paul is contemplating death as we know it uh, or life as we know it, he is contemplating Christ as he knows him. And he knows Christ to be Lord and Savior in life and in death. He knows Christ to be grace in life and in death. He knows Christ's kingdom of justice and peace to be ultimately victorious and already present because Christ is present with his people. And all the more in acts of serving. So Paul can say that to die is gain. But he can also speak of fruitful labor and living. For both living and dying mean being with Christ. And it is in holding these together that Paul finds what he calls joy. And it is in holding these together that the Philippians find encouragement. And I particularly find it encouraging that Paul's theological flow leads him to think that he will live. Not because he's afraid of dying, but because he's eager to be together with the Lord who serves, the Lord who loves, the Lord who shows grace. And Paul looks around and there's still many opportunities and much need to show grace and love to serve in this world where Christ is present yet not always felt. So Paul looks to death and thinks about being with Christ and thinking about being with Christ, he thinks about the Christ who serves and then he looks at the world and he thinks, this is where we do it. True, there must be something different and quite special to eating maniac flour with Jesus after we've experienced what we call death. But Christ is no less present with us as we, take, as we taste the maniac flour in the hollow of our wrinkled hand. And he is no less present with us as we write letters and have dreams or shed tears from lockdown. He is no less present with us in our prisons than he is in our freedoms and in the freedom which he brings to us. So what will we do with these realities that surround us and that we find ourselves in? What will we do with our own particular freedoms and fears, prisons and gifts? What will our fruitful labor look like? How will we speak and act from life even in the realities of death. What does it mean for us to be with Christ, knowing that Christ is with us 
today and that this Christ with us is a Christ who loves, is a Christ who serves, is a Christ who shows grace and compassion. And in that presence, to find this thing that Paul calls joy. What will it look like? So may the Lord bless us as we contemplate him. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you there, where and when you are. And may he bring you peace. Go in peace and serve the Lord joyfully.